You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Mac Conwell, Managing Director at Rare Breed Ventures. And today we'll talk about dropping out of college, starting the first company and making those first mistakes, comparing the first company with the last company and starting a venture capital fund. So Mac, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Rare Breed Ventures. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. So my name is McKeever Conwell II. I go by Mac. If you follow me on Twitter, it's Mac the VC at Mac Conwell. Um, and so I guess my background is I'm a software engineer by trade. Um, my sophomore year of school and college <clears throat> uh, here in Baltimore, where I'm from, I got an internship with the Department of Defense and got a top secret clearance. So my junior year, I dropped out of school because Northrop Grumman offered me a bunch of money. I spent several years as a government contractor. <laughs> After that, went on to start two companies. Uh, uh, one I ran for four and a half years. The other one was much shorter. One was an exit, one was a fail. Um, then I found my way to the investment arm for the state of Maryland. There, I worked on the seed investment team, making investments in companies based in Maryland. I then launched a pre-seed fund within that organization to invest in underrepresented founders. It's the first and only state-backed pre-seed fund in the country for women and minority-led startups. And in August, I left that company to that organization to start Rare Breed Ventures, a pre-seed to seed venture fund. So that's the quick background. Nice. We'll definitely get into more details specifically on Rare Breed Ventures and what you do there. But first question is actually dropping out of college. So you mentioned that you did drop out of college. And my question is, do you think that was the right choice back then? And so would you change that decision, you know, looking at it right now? It's one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. Um, <laughs> for, for me, I understand the mindset. So um, I don't come from means, right? So I come from a very humble background. And so when I went to college, I went to college to increase my earning potential. And so by getting that um, internship with the Department of Defense and top secret clearance, I was able to gain a job and, and, and gain the earning potential that I went to college to pursue. Right? So, you know, within, mm-hmm. two, within three years of me quitting school, uh, I was making six figures and I was helping my friends who were just graduating school um, get jobs. And get clearances themselves. So for me, it worked out really well. Um, I also have the personality to do it because if you're going to drop out of school and go pursue things yourself directly, you got to get really good at self promotion and being able to talk through why your skill cell, your skill set's so valuable and why people should still hire you. I was also a software engineer, so like it's also an industry that lends itself to skills more than some others. So like I can show you, you know, my my portfolio or my GitHub of work and be able to get a job. I don't know if you can do that in every industry. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, I completely understand that approach and that approach is working indeed. I've seen that many times and that makes a lot of sense. So now let's talk about mistakes, actual mistakes. So when you start your first company, what do you think was your major mistake? And I think uh, that was the company that didn't make it, right? No. So the first company we did make it. Right. It was after it was after a pivot. And so mm-hmm. the biggest mistake we made was, I mean, we didn't know anything. Like, we were just three engineers who thought we could build anything. Right. And so 
we set out to build something that we thought was cool and that we that solved the problem that we had and thought other people had. We never validated whether or not this was a problem people were willing to pay to have solved. And so we didn't do customer discovery. And that was one of the biggest mistakes. The other mistake was we built all this technology and we never prioritized, prioritized customer acquisition. We just thought that we built a dope product, people would use it. Like there was all this uh, information. If you build a great product, um, people will come and use your product and it was all about the product. Um, mm -hmm. And then we figured out it was, like that's not really how it works. <laughs> Even if you have a product, yes, a great product will sell itself, but you still got to get it in front of people. So you need to right. make sure you have, you know, you built everything you need along the way so that, you know, so that you're drawing, you're, you're driving people towards your product. And so that took us a year and a half, two years to figure out. Uh, once we figured that out, though, nice. things started working smoothly for us. All right. So what do you think you could do to accelerate that process of figuring that out, you know, and making that pivot faster? Um, one, done customer discovery. Two, start off your company thinking through uh, what your customer acquisition channels are going to be and start like trying testing them out. So even though my second company failed, um, I took that learning and for the second company, we were able to raise money really quickly because I figured out how to sign up. There was a B2B product catering to e-commerce, uh, catering to like small business owners selling products online. And so we were able to set up, sell, set, we were able to acquire 120 sellers in two weeks pre-product, all willing to pay $20 a month, right? And mm -hmm. I was able to use that information to raise myself a nice little pre-seed round to get, to get moving, right? So had I done that the first time around, um, our exit would have been a, a whole lot larger. Right. So in terms of fundraising, because it's fundraising, really, I just have to touch onto that topic. Did you raise money for the first or the second company? So we didn't raise any money for the first company, um, but we were able to raise money for the second company. Um, and uh, the thing was for the first company, we started trying to raise money too early because what we were fundamentally mm -hmm. trying to do was we had a product and we didn't have customers. So we figured if we found some investors to give us money, we could put that money towards marketing. And so really what we were trying to do is trying to throw money at a problem that we didn't know how to solve. And we just figured money could solve it. It's not really how that works this early, at that early stage of the company. Like you already have to know how that money is going to be used. You can't be using your money just to throw it at a wall and try to figure out what sticks. And so um, for the first company, we didn't run fundraise. And when we pivoted to what we ultimately ended up selling off to a division of a Fortune 100 company, um, from when we did the pivot day one, once we started getting our B2B customers, we were, we were profitable. We were making money. And so we didn't need the raise, so we were just trying to gain traction and build up leverage. And as that was happening, we just happened to get an acquisition. Nice. Um, we asked somebody to come to us and ask us for an acquisition, right? Um, or not really acquisition, they asked to buy the IP from us, right? Which is same, mm -hmm. same difference. Um, for the second company, I did raise money. I mean, it was really easy. I did it really quickly. That's because I knew exactly what I wanted to do day one. I figured out what the problem was and I validated it. Um, I then signed up, uh, I got an email list of a bunch of sellers who were willing to pay and wanted to pay. 
And I already had a network of investors that I knew from my previous experience running a company. Mm-hmm. So I was able to use all that to my advantage. And so in like under, in like the span of six weeks, I put a team together, raised some money and got into an accelerator, right? Which is wicked fast, but also doing it so fast was like a big mistake that we made. <laughs> cool question here, by the way, before we move on to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, the team assemblance and uh, how it ended up. Why did you decide to go to Accelerator? So for me personally, Accelerator is a place for someone to, you know, speed up their learning process over the startup world. So for someone who's not very experienced, since you already had a previous exit in the company, uh, why did you decide to go with Accelerator? So accelerators are good for two things, generally speaking, in my estimation, money or connections, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very few accelerators do both well. They usually do one or the other. <laughs> That's and so, true. And so the reason going to the accelerator, one, there was some additional capital. But when you go into an accelerator like that, you tend to have a spotlight on you that's brighter than at any other time in your business before you get to like a series B, right? And so the opportunity at the very early stages to have a bunch of interest and be top of mind for people and then being able to use the cachet or the name of that accelerator to get additional network, to break into additional networks was just appealing. Like I had a network and I had grown a network from my previous company, but it was in a different industry. So I need to get, I need to get more industry and more contacts and connections within the realm of e-commerce. And um, I also just wanted the eyeball. So, you know, I figured, you know, I'd take that money and I'd use it. Plus, at the time, so we ended up going to Dream Adventures in Philadelphia, and at the time, Dream it was still a top five, maybe top ten accelerator. So the name carried some weight, and so that mm-hmm. was the advantage there. Okay, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. So now let's move on to the topic of you know assembling a team. So you said that in a matter of like six weeks, you've assembled a team, you've raised money, and you've moved on in the process. And the company on our pre-interview call, you mentioned that the company ended up failing because of the team issue. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, at the, in the, the first time around, um, when I, I put the company together, it was me and two of my best friends, right? Mm-hmm. As I had gone through the process of building the company over, uh, as I had gone through the process and um, I've been in the ecosystem. I've met a bunch of people along the way. So when I started my second company, I just reached out to some of those people. Like, hey, you know, I'm looking to do something new. Would you be interested? And so I just assembled a new group of folks. And I was lucky that, you know, I just had these names and these people I could pull off, you know, very quickly. What I did wrong, though, was I put the team together too quickly. So, like I said, in a matter of six weeks, I put the team together, raised some money, and we got into an accelerator. So... You know, some of these people had full-time jobs when they started working. It was a cool idea to do nights and weekends. And so we went from doing on this nights and weekends project, talking through things to everybody quit your jobs. We're moving to Philadelphia. We're doing this accelerator. Not everybody was prepared for that. And I didn't take the time to get to know everybody well enough to know who was ready for that transition and who wasn't. Because everybody tells you they are. Everybody says, yeah, I'm in the I'm in this for the long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be, <laughs> be a startup founder. You know, we're going to build the mm-hmm. next Google or Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when you actually get there, you got to do the work. Not <laughs> that's the sad part, yeah. <laughs> actually, ready for that. So that, that's kind of what happened. 
Right. So uh, what's your recommendation to the founders who are starting their companies right now, who are just in the process of, you know, assembling that team, trying to figure out if that's actually the team that's going to last for 10 years or that's the kind of the team that's going to fall apart in six months? How how would you recommend them approach this problem? I don't know if there's a way to really approach that problem other than, you know, protect yourself, you know, put everybody, you know, put an operating agreement together where, Mm -hmm. everybody's equity is already you know figured out and you make everybody invest over a four or five year period and you put a one-year cliff so that if they leave within a year they get no equity right you know make sure everything's set up and in their writing and um understand this right the average team to get started is three people three to four people by the mm-hmm. time you get to your series b only one of those original founders is left on the company the company usually by then like your series B, series C. So like in general, the team you start with probably isn't going to be the team that carries this thing to the finish line. You want to make sure you have the right people with the right skill sets to get you to your next stage. And that's all you can really account for at that time. Nice. That's actually really good advice. I was not aware that so many people actually drop out on the way there, which is surprising to me, actually. <laughs> um so yeah, now let's talk about rare breed ventures. Uh, what do you invest in? Uh, what stage? What check size? What industry? Yeah, so uh, me and my team at Rare Breed Ventures were industry agnostic. Uh, we stay away from life sciences. It's not our skill set. Like we don't know how to evaluate therapeutics and things like that. But we'll do just about anything else. Um, our, our target check size is two hundred fifty thousand. Um, we can go slightly larger, slightly smaller if need be, but two hundred fifty is where we like to be. Um, what was the other question? What's the check size industry? And I forgot the last part of it. Check size industry and stage, stage, that, that stage. Oh, stage. <laughs> uh, we're pre-seed to seed. So we do, mm-hmm. we like to say our sweet spot is anything sub 10 million post money valuations. Um, we'll go higher than that um, if, if it's for the right company, but 10 million is kind of where we like, 10 million or below is where we like to be. So pre-seed to seed is really the stages that we, we live in. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Great. So um, now let's talk about how you actually evaluate the company. So that's that's a question that a lot of founders get when they start applying to VCs on their websites. And they're like, okay, you know, I assume that those VCs are getting hundreds of those applications every single month. How can I stand out uh, by showing some particular metrics? So question is, what are the major factors of the company that you look at while you're reviewing the application? Uh, the first thing I'm going to look at is, is this in a market that can support a billion dollar company? If it can't, mm-hmm. it's, that's an automatic, like it's an easy pass. Like we are unicorn hunting. Like if you don't have the potential to become a unicorn, that's not going to work. The next thing I'm going to look for is, you know, what's your traction been like, right? You don't actually need to have a lot of traction for us. Uh, but you need to be able to talk through how you got your traction and know exactly how you get your customers. But, you know, if you have been growing really quickly and, you know, you figured out something unique in the marketplace, we're going to want to dive into that. Uh, and, th- and that's really where it starts. It's like, do you have a big market? Have you figured out how you get customers or how you're going to go about getting customers that make sense or is unique or something clearly repeatable? That you can call, talk through. Does your business model or unit economics make sense, right? And that's kind of the starting point. We can figure out everything else from there. 
mm-hmm. necessarily care so much about what industry or sector you're in because there's going to be plenty of industries and sectors I don't know enough about or that I don't like where you can still have billion-dollar companies, right? So I'm smart enough to know that I have biases and I need to get my biases out the way. 100%. That's true. Uh, speaking of traction, I personally love traction as well. And my standard advice to founders, you know, get traction as soon as possible. Even if you don't have literally any product at all, try, still try to sell it. Sell idea, sell uh, uh, the idea, try to get a layer of intent, do whatever just to get that traction. But in your opinion, what do you think is the most appropriate stage to actually start generating that traction? As soon as possible. Like, for my for my second company, we didn't have a product, but I was able to show I had 120 people who were willing to pay twenty dollars a month because what nice. we were solving was so impro- was so important for them, right? Like, yeah. I Quick question here: How do you how do you show that the, those people were willing to pay twenty thousand a month? I had a, I had a sign up where people had signed up and put in their credit card information to say yes, nice. twenty dollars a month. Let's go. Oh, <laughs> right. So like when I went to investors, like. I didn't have a product. I didn't have anything, but like, hey, here's a list of 120 people ready to play now as a month with their credit card information stored. Well, That's very impressive, actually. That is very impressive. Quick question on that. How, how mm-hmm. do you manage to get so many people sign up for a product that does not even exist yet? And $20,000, that's, that's a lot. So basically, you know, so we were basically at the time, this is 2014, reaching out to people who were selling products on Instagram, but didn't have stores. And so the way you sold products on Instagram back then was you had to do everything to like email and text messages. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of that before. And so we said, you know, we're creating a product that will allow you to sell on, um, on from a mobile device, just like you would on Instagram, but faster and easier. Um, so the same mm-hmm. customer base. And like all these sellers said, yes, I want this, let's go kind of thing. And so it was just that we, we hit on a problem that was really, really big. And that people want it solved really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Nice and great work. To be honest, I have not heard that many cases of, you know, people managing to get so much traction so early on with no product and still getting that, you know, sign up information with the credit card information. That's just great. Um, so here, let's move on to the question that's like more of an entertainment, I guess, but I personally love that question. So what is the craziest idea you've ever seen in your startup life career or the idea that was pitched to you as the managing director of uh, Rare Breed Ventures? So when I worked for the state of Maryland, we saw a lot of stuff coming out of like universities and things like that. Mm-hmm. One of the craziest is a company creating a tool that basically their goal is for people that have had traumatic injuries that are like, you know, where your significant blood loss, uh-huh. trying to cre- they're creating a process where they're trying to freeze that part of your body to slow down the blood loss and flow of that part of the body to preserve it long enough to get you to surgery <laughs> to increase the, 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 ch- the timeline to save a person's life. Nice. Um, and how, how did that work out? They haven't had a successful one yet, but they've gotten close, but they've extended the lifespan where people have actually gotten to surgery where they normally don't even get that far. Nice. So there's some like promising like indications there, but like if somebody figures that out, yeah, y'all going to be billionaires somewhere like cool. But like, that's just fundamentally like out of this world to me. A hundred percent. That sounds very, very strange to me. I, uh, <laughs> 
very strange, but sounds very ambitious as well. So good luck to those people who are doing this. All right, so here we're moving on to the last two questions of today's episode. First one is, what's your advice to founders who are trying to raise money right now during this pandemic, getting closer to being over supposedly with the vaccine being developed? What's your advice to those people who are trying to raise their first check right now during these times? I would tell you, focus on building your business more than you are raising money. Because at the end of the day, the business is what gets you paid, not your pitch deck. That's your storytelling, but the, the business itself. So we want to have a strong foundation mm-hmm. and be and as unique and innovative as you are in the product that you're building, be just as unique and innovative in your customer acquisition. Because customer acquisition gets you paid through revenue, attraction, which can then lead to additional funding. So 100%. Focus on the right things. 100% customer acquisition, insanely important. And for those who might be not very good at it, we do have a bunch of episodes on customer acquisition, customer interviews. Uh, just go to our official website and type it in. Customer, you'll get a bunch of great episodes there. On this note, we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Mac, what is the one thing you want to listener to do as soon as the episode is over? When this episode is over, Go to Twitter and follow me, Mac the VC, or at Mac Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. If you are an, uh, an accredited investor and interested in being an LP in Rare Breed Ventures, we are raising under 506C designation, which means I can publicly disclose. So go to rarebreed.vc. <laughs> that's rarebreed.vc. Uh, there is a button you can click on to become an LP. Fill out that quick form and you will get X and you will get um uh, access to our legal docs, our pitch deck, and all the other good stuff. So, if you're in the, and by the way, our minimum uh, buy-in for an LP right now is still 10k. That will change nice. sometime next year. So, if you got, if you're an accredited investor and you got 10,000 more, you'd like to put into a venture fund that's changing the world. Feel free to check out, check us out, rarebreed.vc. Click the button, become an LP. Perfect. I'll make sure to leave links to those. Uh... I'll make sure to leave those links in the description of this episode. Sounds pretty good. A minimum check size of $10,000. That's very impressive, actually. I have not seen that frequently. So it's a nice move. And also, thanks for disclosing that it's 5060. I was getting worried there for you disclosing it on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm glad you do. Um, on this positive note, I'll wrap it up. Uh, my call to action is going to be, of course, go to the description of this episode. I'll leave links that Mac mentioned in this episode, specifically to his Twitter, to Rare, Rare Breed Ventures, and maybe to something else, maybe not. But there are going to be a bunch of links that are useful. So go check it out. And as usually, have a good day.